Welcome to America This Week from the Harris Poll. I'm John Gersma, and as always, I'm with Libby Rodney, our Chief Strategy Officer. Libby, how are you? Hey, I'm great, John. How are you doing? Well, good. We have a special episode. We actually hit the road this week, didn't we? Yeah, we were in beautiful Miami. In a conference room in beautiful Miami. Yes, but um, in, a, in a very nice conference room. So It, it was very nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what we're going to do this this morning is take you through a an overview of our slides. And if anyone is interested in the slides themselves, please reach out to us at America this week at harrispoll.com. Let me make that more clear. ATW at harrispoll.com. But Libby, the title of our talk at the Forbes CMO Summit was not what you think. What's that all about? Yeah, we, we thought it would be fun to create these categories of buzzy business words, you know, the metaverse, cryptocurrency, all these things (laughs) that people kind of talk about and might roll their eyes around, but really think about what are the underlying human values that are shifting humans, consumers into those spaces? And why do you have to be paying attention to those things versus the actual kind of buzzy term around it? So putting some structure underneath all these jargony words. That's right. A little bit of, of human values. Okay, great. Well, I think maybe a good place to start is obviously the macro environment. You and I have talked about this on the show a lot, that we're living in this time of stacked crises. I think we described it in Miami as a uh, an anxiety flambe, right? It was mm-hmm. one crisis stacked on top of the others. And you know we clearly saw that in the data even this week. 86% of Americans concerned about the economy, 83 the recession, 82 on crime, and 75% of Americans in our Harvard-Harris poll saying that the economy is on the wrong track. So with that, what, what do you really sort of take as a springboard to where we should take this? Yeah, I mean, I think, so I think the big net takeaway is if you listen to this podcast, you understand we're in this time of stock crisis. You also probably are getting an indicator understanding that this is leading to distinct generational values. And, you know, just like generations of the past, these stock crises are creating why Gen Z are the way they are, or even why millennials are the way they are. But, you know, this is why we see quiet quitting. This is why we see the great resignation. Mm-hmm. This is why we see climate change activists. This is why we see the thumbs up emoji being a signal of passive aggressiveness that <laughs> is changing. I mean, these crises are creating pressure that is changing generational values in the real world in the real moment that we're in today. Well, clearly changing generational values is on the minds of business. If you recall, you know, in our listening project, our work with the Milken Institute, you know, we surveyed business leaders at Milken and 76% of them said that changing generational values would have an impact on their business operations in the coming year. And that was at the same level as regulatory uncertainty and geopolitical instability. There was something else sort of in this data that they missed, right? Yeah, it was really interesting. So business leaders overall, we thought, first of all, that they thought changing generational values were as important as regulatory uncertainty or supply chain. That's just incredibly impressive stat. But that they don't connect it to the actual new behavioral models. So what they think is less important or going to be impactful to their business is working from home or hybrid working, the metaverse, Web3, cryptocurrencies, and NFTs. And what's interesting about that gap that you can see in the charts if you get your whole hand on this report is that barrier is just saying that they don't understand how these values are being brought to life. And so Hmm. it's interesting, like you can understand, I believe in new generational 
traditional values. But when you roll your eyes around cryptocurrency or Web3, what you're saying is, I don't really understand how those values are being brought to life in the world today. Mm. And there, a lot of this is at nascent stage, but it's important to understand how these values and behavior shifts are already impacting the market. And so we thought what would be really fun for these marketers and also for this audience who's, you know, intellectually curious and wants to see where the future is going is to kind of put some of these things to question. So we we have 10 of them that we're going to run through today on the show. And we'll try to go a little slow and, and try to, you know, make sure that you understand where we are. But the first one, for example, out of 10 is the metaverse. And I think what's interesting here is not what you think is that the metaverse isn't a dystopia. You know, it's not a world, John, where we're all going to be in VR glasses and not talk to each other. <laughs> yeah. And from a consumer point of view, I mean, this is the important part. Forget the business application for a second. The reason consumers care about this is because it's a promise of freedom. And we see that millennials, for example, already think how you present yourself online is more important than you present yourself in person. 62%, wow. a majority of them, right? They also feel like they would like to try on different identities in the metaverse. Americans under 30 at 57%. So there's this, your identity is online, the freedom to express yourself is online. And also they think that millennials think they'll be likely that the metaverse will provide lucrative career paths and money-making opportunities at 73%. So hmm. almost three-fourths. So they're like, hey, this is where my identity is. This is where my exploration is. And this is where opportunities for wealth building and stability is. So it's very, you know, we're going to move into the metaverse because consumers are bringing us into the metaverse, not just because it's a buzzword. Right. And I think that's real interesting, Libby, because that's also sort of the same dynamic that we found with cryptocurrencies, right? Now, clearly mm -hmm. the world is shorted crypto, but when we go back and we look at, again, those underlying values, what we found was that cryptocurrencies they're not speculation, right? They're actually a path outside of a discriminatory system. And I think what's real interesting in this data, Libby, is it's less about what crypto is, but really more about what traditional financial investing isn't, right? You know, we asked this question, how much do you invest in cryptos? And we see that white Americans at 24%, but geez, Libby, I mean, we saw that black Americans at 40%, Hispanics at 46%, LGBTQIA plus at 40%. So that's anywhere between sort of 15 and, and, and over 20 points in some instances higher in terms of investing. And then we also found that over two thirds of these audiences say that crypto is legitimate payment form, that being BIPOC and LGBTQIA plus versus 50% only of white Americans. So Libby, there's something really fundamentally different going on here. Yeah. And I think fundamentally what it is, whether you believe in cryptocurrencies or you think it's a speculative asset or not, is not the question. Right. What you're seeing is they are, you know, seeking an alternative on path or on ramp to wealth development. And that's a thorough line that we see through all of these trends is that, hey, this isn't working. And so we're going to we're going to figure out a different way. We're going to raise our hand mm. over here. And I think that is the biggest thing people need to pay attention to. It's like where consumers, where people sick of hitting their head against the wall. So when there's this alternative path, they're going to raise their hand over there. And then how do you intersect that hand raising so that you're a part of it, that you understand it, that you build community around that. And that gets us into our number 
number three, not what you think, which is about Web3. And Web3 isn't about big tech. It's about access and ownership. And I, I think you, we're starting to see, I think we'll talk about it this Friday, but the decrease of FANG, for example, you've already started to see it. We started to see the shifts, the sea change that was happening with American consumers. 85% said there's too much economic power in the hands of too few big tech companies. And 84% said the value exchange with big tech is lopsided and big tech takes more than they give. And this is worthy to talk about for a second because it's such a paradigm shift from where we were 10 years ago, where everyone was excited about the freemium economy. And they were, you know, so happy that big tech was giving them free access to kind of everything and just giving them platforms to connect to each other. And now the model is like, hey, listen, I want privacy. I want control. I want to have monetization impact of all the the data, the content that I am giving you. So when we ask consumers about what do they want from the future of the internet, they said they want to increase control over personal data and identity. They want an internet for those who understand what Web3 is, built on blockchain, that's decentralized social media platforms, and they want a climate-friendly internet. So they really have big expectations for Hmm. the evolution of what the internet looks like and what our digital lives look like. This was my favorite, Libby. I mean, basically cited at the conference, a a New Yorker cartoon, right? Oh, yeah. We did have a New Yorker cartoon, which is fantastic, where this guy is actually selling his own data. It's a it's a great cartoon by Jeremy Nugan. And he's, he said he's selling his own data. So it's just like, it's just imagine a guy sitting there selling things like a, at a garage sale. And he's like, I went to Popeye's five times this week. You know, I said avocado twice today. It's like, what does it look like if <laughs> Americans create a garage sale of their own data is basically the, the cartoon. Number four is this idea about quiet quitting. So we've talked about this, John, on the show before. Mm -hmm. And really, the thing is, at the heart of it, it's not about jobs. It's about new aspirations and quiet Mm -hmm. upskilling. So the idea that we're just you know, stepping back and we don't care about work, that's that's false. This is just employee disengagement. But at the same time, you find that people are creating new aspirational lifestyles for themselves. And what's at the heart of this? Well, the numbers are 70% of millennials say they have been sold false promises around what will create happiness in life. And around the same number report actively seeking alternative lifestyles to create a happier life than they imagined pre-pandemic. So what they were doing before wasn't creating them happiness. They're going to create a new lifestyle that will create them happiness and they're going to design it differently. And that's a really important thing to kind of think about because we really don't know today's consumer the way we knew them five years ago. At the same time, we see that 65% of all employees say they're learning new skills and doing professional development to advance their career or switch positions. And around 60% are also exploring new opportunities. So they're not on their back foot. They're not just taking a nap all day. They're actually redesigning their lives with purpose, upskilling and reskilling just maybe quietly, and then looking for a new job in the future. Libby, I think that's really interesting because so much of the media narrative around quiet quitting has been about running away from something. But I think what you're seeing in this Harris Poll data is about people upskilling, actually running to something, right? I mean, they're really thinking less about sort of this detachment and more about their own enhancement. Like, what are they trying to do to learn? Yeah. And I think that that indicates where we're at in this kind of free market, free labor economy where people think themselves as free agents. So Mm -hmm. yes, they might be kind of quietly quitting their job, but they're in the background looking for skills 
re kind of building their life. So maybe it's a big move across to another coast or to be closer home to family, but they're figuring out what are the skills that I need to to build the kind of life I want to work the job that I want. And so it is a very intentional thing that is taking a lot of energy and it might just be taking energy from the current workplace that they're at, but it's going to add a lot of energy into future workplaces if you figure out how to get those new people with their new aspirations into your environment. So I I think that's a great place to jump off into our not what you think, number five. And and the last one that you just talked about, Libby, to me really talks a lot about the desire for happiness, right? You talked about free agency. Mm-hmm. And here, this this trend that we, we have here is that there was this sense sort of that the recession uh, on one hand had us sort of thinking about cutting everything. Well, that really isn't what people are saying. What they're actually looking for is sort of joy, Right. We, we believe that joy is the justification of this decade. And th- there were some great stats in our in our presentation at the Forbes CMO Summit, including the fact that nearly eight out of 10 Americans agree they have become more purposeful with how they spend their money to bring more joy. Those numbers go even higher among older Americans slightly. And then joy is a justification. Two thirds of Americans report justifying discretionary spending that brings them joy, right? Millennials were even higher at 70%. And then more than half of Americans say that even as this economy gets worse, they aren't going to stop spending on things that bring them joy. And that's again, even higher for millennials, nearly six and 10. And Libby, I just think it's worth pausing on that because so much now is about, you know, cutting back and sort of looking at, at more savings and being more more sort of thrifty. Clearly, that is part of people's strategies. We see that in our data, but it doesn't mean you're not going to spend. I think what's interesting about this is that this is a defiance of all this volatility that we talked about, right? You've got sort of people thinking more about, I think I described it as joy bubbles, right? What are your opportunistic either events or experiences or, or situations that you really going to spend. And so do you think kind of the consumers getting more strategic, more agile? What would you sort of take from this? I think that the pandemic gave us enough pause where we figured out what is really important to us. And I would say that there's probably different affinity groups of where you find joy in your life. So Mm. we know, for example, there's affinity groups around coffee shop lovers and travelers and all these kinds of different things or splurging on your children. And those things, people aren't going to dial down. They're going to continue dialing up and they're going to cut uh, ruthlessly on the other things. So I think what's really interesting about about that is trying to get ahead of this joy wave or really understand it and really understand where are these affinity groups? How do you tap into them? And how do you amplify their version of joy? This sentiment has been growing since the pandemic and it's just growing stronger. So our, our attachment to joy in dark times is kind of the counter trend to experiencing the stack crisis that we see ourselves in today. Mm. So we also have a section that we talked about, the sixth out of our 10, not what you thinks, now takes us into social media and social networks. And I think one of the more interesting things that we talked about was this idea that social networks aren't about friends. It's really sort of the new TV. And we, we put up a, a slide that had a post from the Kardashians that, that were really mad about the changes in the algorithms. And I think Kim Kardashian posted on Instagram, hey, make Instagram Instagram again. Stop trying to be TikTok. I just want to see cute photos of my friends. And that's really really a generational signal there, right? A difference between millennials and Gen Z, because what we found in our data is that it was less with younger people 
about wanting my feed to be filled with updates from friends and people I follow, and actually more about wanting their feed to be filled with personalized content that the platform thinks I'll like. And we found, you know, two thirds of Gen Z say algorithms have increased the content they like to consume and be entertained by uh, significantly different than say boomers at 25% who are still maybe trapped in the traditional sort of Facebook platform. Yeah. And I think that the net net of this is we're seeing a massive evolution of what social media looks like. And it's really been spurred on by the adaption and really the takeover of TikTok in a lot of ways. So mm-hmm. Gen Z doesn't care that their friends aren't on social media in the same way. They're, they're not tied to the social graph. So then you have to also question a point that we made in the presentation is like, why are we still calling it social media anyways, right? right? And that's why we said it's the new TV, because it's not really about what your friend's lives look like, which is really what Instagram and Facebook were centered around. And also why Kim Kardashian was able to make such a profitable business, because it was like this aspirational, affluent lifestyle and people felt closer to her or friends to her on Instagram. But TikTok's kind of the opposite of that. In fact, our research shows younger people don't even follow really celebrities on TikTok platform. And it's really mm-hmm. about massive amounts of interesting content that people are tapped into. And so it's much more like the way that we would have traditionally consumed TV, which gets us to our not what you think seven point, which is TikTok is not just a platform. It's not just something that's like a new social media, like, oh, what's going on with Snap? It's really becoming the center of gravity. And I think what's so interesting here is we asked a question, when you're looking for culturally relevant content, which platform would be your first choice to search for that information? That has always traditionally been Google, right? It's like you Google it, you find it. Boomers, Gen Xers, millennials, it's still Google. For Gen Z, the first platform that they would search is TikTok. It it creates huge ramifications for industries outside of social media. For example, Google itself is changing and adapting their search functionalities to be more like TikTok, to be more immersive and searchable and tied to, you know, videos and ways in which you want to explore. Also, Netflix is worried about TikTok. They named it one of their prime competitors because of where young people are spending their time being entertained and also, you know, searching for content. So Hmm. TikTok is, is really a center of gravity. We also found that it's an undercover learning channel. I think this is really fascinating. You know, I think if you're not on TikTok, you might kind of dismiss it and say, oh, that's that thing that it's an algorithm and everyone gets addicted to it. But if you're on it, you can see how you could really learn things from TikTok. And that's what Gen Z really likes doing. So they're not just learning about food and fashion and music, but they're actually learning about career and job advice or local businesses or experiences and politics and STEM categories. They're learning about a lot of stuff and a majority of Gen Z users regularly visit TikTok to learn something. And the reason it's important is because 81%, so a a huge majority of Gen Z and millennials say that ongoing education is core to their ability to create financial stability. So not only is TikTok an entertainment platform, but it's an education platform that leads them to feeling like if they learn something, they will be more able to create financial security in the future in that way. That's interesting, Libby. That also ties back to the upskilling, right? Yeah, exactly. It's just importance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of upskilling going on on TikTok right now as well. So let's get into the eighth trend of not what you think, which is that CEOs aren't executives 
they are brands. And this was related to a lot of the heat that's gone on recently about CEOs speaking out on social issues. And clearly, when we look at our data, you know, CEOs have become obviously the focal point for the manifestation of the reputation of the company, of its ethical standards, of its financial success, that eight out of 10 Americans, you know, associate CEOs with that. But I think, Libby, what was interesting in this data, because we were talking to chief marketing officers, we actually really wanted them to think about themselves as CEOs of their customers and their relationships. And we fielded a special piece of data. And I'd love for you to take the audience through this. Yeah. So we asked, you know, we're curious. And this is also why as people listening to this podcast, please send us polling ideas because we were like, what if we ask this question? And so the question was, given the current state of the economy, how could brands best be supporting consumers? And what's so fascinating about the results is, you know, in the 2008 recession, we asked questions like that. And it was like, give me a better discount or give me some assurance on price, right? The biggest thing that comes up, John, is pay the employees, these these companies' employees, a decent living wage. Hmm. And then that's at 50%. And then it drops down to the 30, 35, 34% around offer rewards program, offer more discounts on white labeled brand products, give back to the local communities, kind of the traditional playbook of a recession, like entering a recession expectations. But the pay their employees a decent living wage to me is so fascinating because it really hits on consumers' expectations for brand brands and companies to be like societal stewards, right? Like we have to fix society as a whole for us to all move forward. You can't just be doing something for the individual, which was always prioritized. But now I need to see my whole community being doing well together, basically. I I think what's so interesting in that, Libby, is that there seems to be a consumer dissonance with believing that your consumption is tied to someone else's hardship, that, that you might be buying into a brand and, you know, the barista or the, or the person, you know, waiting on you or serving you in a hotel or wherever isn't sort of isn't participating in that joy. And I think that's really interesting. It's a very selfless take that they want that to be their first thing before things they want for themselves. Yeah, it's a very, it's a really great point, John, because the, I think that's what happened primarily because of the pandemic. People really started to understand the plight of frontline workers and mm. how they didn't have the economic stability or support or cushion that other Americans had. And you started to, a lot of people started to really take a pause and reflection in that, you know, and I'm not talking about people in our circles. I'm talking about average Americans we talk to in these groups and salons sessions, et cetera, they really started to say like, well, I had this opportunity, but the person servicing me at the cash register didn't. And so we started thinking about our relationship to each other in a much more fundamental and human way. And I think that's that continues and it's being pushed into kind of a little bit of a labor evolution or maybe revolution as we move forward. Yeah, absolutely. So two more quick takeaways and then Libby, you're going to land this plane with some practical ideas, right? For how to take these trends forward. So the ninth idea is that companies aren't Switzerland. They are the UN. And this goes straight to this belief that that 
many companies believe they can stand on the sidelines and say, hey, we can, we're going to be neutral. Well, that's not really the case. You, you cannot be neutral in today's environment between managing all the different stakeholders that are going to have very different conflicting views. And so when we looked at this, one of the things we did is we drawed back on our, our Milken Institute data and we found that 62% of citizens Libby around the world, this was 27 countries, said there was more reward than risk in CEOs speaking out on social issues. The actual facts when you talk to business leaders was completely inverse. 64% of leaders said there was more risk than reward. So you have a generational change happening here. And then clearly we've seen in our data that, you know, when you looked at reputation, if you weren't staking out a clear point of view that was aligned with your values, that if you weren't sort of shifting and moving around and, and you know, taking, in, in contrast, actually taking risks by shifting or moving around rather, you know, we noted that one of the top decliners in reputation in our Axios Harris poll data this year was Walt Disney, right? That declined almost 27 points in our our overall rankings on the basis of the, the don't say gay bill. And so clearly this is an incredibly difficult issue, but I think the kind of guidance that we would offer is that you need to take clear positions via the values that you have in place. And you need to be careful with sort of how you sort of reach out and just court every little crisis du jour. And that's why I think we compared this to the UN, right? The UN is a convener, they have clear goals for participation and they try to track and stay true to those goals. So quite a phenomenal thing to be citing the UN is the perfect uh, case study <laughs> in this. But I think it's a good par parallel that you that you raised originally. I agree. I also think in the context of so much volatility and craziness and noise, the way that the UN creates its 13 goals and creates a coalition around that and creates a point of stewardship and leadership is really important. And that companies don't have to be alone either. They're not Switzerland. The UN is a, is a collection. It's a coalition with people who are on the same path. So that's another way to think about it as well. Absolutely. And so the last trend, Libby, it was funny when we sat and had some uh, some feedback and, and sitting down with a number of the chief marketing officers at the Forbes Summit, we got a lot of feedback on this, a lot of CMOs nodding their head around the trend of don't trust the demos. And I think our point on this was that demos can lure you into a sense of false assumptions that you basically start to create your own stereotypes around who people are based on their economic means, their age, their race, their ethnicity, all these different factors. And one of the examples we used was from our COVID tracker, where we found that during the pandemic, the, the most daredevil, most reckless cohort of Americans were actually seniors. They were the ones that were less fearful of a new wave, less fearful of returning back to normal activity, going to restaurants first, et cetera. And I thought that was really counterintuitive. Absolutely. I also think we've seen in a lot of our research as of lately that seniors and boomers or the ways that people think about traditional marketing where it kind of stops at 54 or 65 plus is really outdated when you look at the mm -hmm. amount of disposable income, the way that people people are reimagining their lives, the future of longevity, all of these things really impact who that future human consumer is that you can connect with. And so that's also a big part, I believe, of this kind of don't trust the demos is like reorientate your mind around who you're talking to and why and really connect with them on what matters. Sounds great. That's how you're going to reach untapped audiences, right? So if you get yeah. past those surface observations. And so will we, the way that we ended this presentation to kind of 
leave it full circle is like, well, what are the common threads that are going through all these sources of buzz and disruption? And then what do you do about it? So I'm going to run through the five threads. And the first one is this idea of personal agency. People are, because of the stock crisis, right? People are looking for opportunity to take back their own control, their own agency, and further express themselves. Two is because of discriminatory systems or just systems that are kind of broken, people are forging new paths and they're looking for alternative ways to create wealth or design a better life and bring that to the world. Number three is this idea that the American, uh, you know, the global actually consumers, but American consumers are living in a world of shattered safety and the psyche has just been hit hard by stack crisis, but also it's getting worse as the economic instability grows. And number four is this idea, a threat of private leadership. So consumers are looking for brands and companies and CEOs for a better tomorrow. They're kind of throwing in their hand, th- hands up in there and saying like, someone please help us. And then five, when none of that works, they're justifying joy. So consumers <laughs> are spending despite volatility as long as it matches their accounts of personal joy and new aspirations. So, and so Libby, let me, mm-hmm. I was going to say, let me recap those and you answer them. So for personal yeah. agency, what, what would you suggest that marketers do? Yeah. I mean, I think it's wherever you're designing something, create spaces and tools that allow people to build more control or find more freedom within their experience. Even if it's just something small, any signal of free control, and we saw this in the 2008 recession too, makes people feel a lot better. And then number two around uh, people wanting to forge new paths. Yeah, this is where I think you look at where the behaviors are, where people are raising their hands to say, I want to be on new paths and you create new on ramps. So you help people find alternative ways to either find stability or wealth or joy or health in their lives. And you help them on that path to where they might have been hitting their head against the wall. And you say, come over here, we'll help you. We'll, we'll bring you on that path. And then Libby, on, on this idea of shattered safety and these stacked crises. Yeah, I think there's a big opportunity for companies to be get in safety repair mode. So mm. shattered psyche, find ways to soothe or create security and stability in consumers. For example, don't keep pushing things down their throat. Don't overexcite them. Don't over push things in a way like try to soothe, right? It's then the mode is to soothe at least probably for the next 12 months. And then Libby, number four around this idea of private leadership. Yeah. So one thing to do about this is really consider what is your thought leadership strategy? You know, creating a vision and narrative about what the brand and the CEO are moving towards in society. So what do you stand for? What kind of messages do you have behind it? This is primarily what we do for clients, you know, but what is it that you're looking for? And what's the data? What's the research? Why are you moving in the way in which you are? To give people kind of an understanding of the future that you believe and imagine in. Okay. And then last but not least is the thing that we've talked a lot about today about justifying joy. Yeah. And I think this one, right, is if you want to match people's personal joys and new aspirations, you really have to understand what does that look like and what are the new affinities and satellites of joy that are coming out and where do people find it and how can you help? How do you intersect that in a really meaningful way that either celebrates their joy or helps amplify their joy and aligns to it? It's it's not just like, oh, people love to travel. Let's just focus our, our time on travel. It's like, what are people now distinctively getting out of travel that they weren't getting five years ago that they're looking for. And there's like, there's a whole new bucket of trends under that, that we see people reach into joy for as an example, but it kind of goes across many different types of affinities of what and how people are cultivating joy in their lives today. All right. 
Okay, well, that's a quick look at uh, our not what you think presentation, our our ten trends. I think Libby, as you said in the upfront, if anybody wants to get the deck, just reach out to us at atw at harrispoll.com. But I really enjoyed that summit. I don't know about you, but I thought it was real interesting, the Forbes CMO summit, and we were honored, obviously, to to speak at it. Yeah, it was fantastic. It was incredibly intimate and well curated, and it was a privilege to be there for sure. Yeah, special thanks to our buddy at Forbes, uh, Seth Maitlands, for work allowing us to, to present. And we'd love for you guys, as Libby said, to send us polling ideas again to atw at harrispoll.com. But I hope you guys enjoyed this special episode of us sort of riffing on, on our presentation. And Libby, let's get after it, right? It's the start of a new week. Should we get back to work at the Harris Poll? All right, everybody, on behalf of Libby and John, we're uh, really excited and happy for you to listen to us. If you like this show, please leave us a review. It helps other people find it. And Libby, have a great week. You too, John. Talk to you Friday. Okay. Bye.